Hello and welcome to the Media and Marketing Podcast sponsored by UCOM, the body that sets and governs a UK standard for online audience measurement. My name is John Reynolds, the host. Uh, This week we're going to talk all things tech, including the Brexit impact on tech, whether big tech should pay more tax in the UK, and also take a look at the government's white paper on online harms. So with me me this week are Russ Shaw, the founder of the trade body Tech London Advocates, and Garant Lloyd-Taylor, Deputy Head of Advertising and Marketing at law firm Lewis Silkin. Thanks both very much for joining me, uh, gentlemen. You're both very welcome. Start with you, Russ, now. Uh, London Tech Week an event that Tech London Advocates uh, co-organising has just been and gone. Um, just briefly, what is uh, London Tech Week all about? How was it this year? And what were the themes which came out of it? Sure. Well, thank you very much. And, and thank you for having me. Um, London Tech Week, this was our sixth year doing it. Tech London Advocates has been a founding partner since, since its inception. Uh, we had around 60,000 attendees, yep. um, over 300 events. Uh, 35% of the attendees were from overseas. Um, and the focus, as you can imagine, was on all things tech. Some of the big themes were around artificial intelligence, issues around talent, the lack of diversity in our tech sector came through loudly and clearly, and how London can do a much better job uh, than it already is doing in terms of connecting to the rest of the world as a world-leading tech hub. So, you know, I, I like to say, look, in my lifetime, Silicon Valley and, and the greater Bay Area of China will be the tech behemoths. But London, as evidenced last week, okay. is carving out a world-leading role in the, in the tech ecosystem. And you had some big-name speakers. Jack Dorsey was there, was he? Jack Dorsey was you there. You had the CEO of PayPal and yep. founder of Slack. How do, you, how do you sell London Tech Week to, to those particular individuals? Then? Well, I think the message for them is come on over. There's loads of leaders here from all around the world. Um, come over and talk about some of the initiatives that you've got underway in your businesses. But it's a great way to connect to the international tech community. It's a great way to connect to government leaders. Um, We had Prime Minister Theresa May open the week. Uh, The Chancellor of the Exchequer, Philip Hammond, spoke uh, uh, at the Bloomberg Sooner Than You Think event. The Culture Secretary, the Digital uh, Minister were, were all in attendance. So it's a great way for these leaders to not just see and understand what's going on in our ecosystem here, but to meet the right people who are driving the government. Uh, and I have Boris Johnson's in the news at the moment quite a bit. He he originally backed the project, did he, when he was London Mayor too? Yes, I have very fond memories back in 2014 of, of being with Mayor Boris Johnson and Mayor Michael Bloomberg from New York, who came over to help us launch our very first London Tech Week at Central Working in Shoreditch, right next to Google Campus. It was a bit of a scrappy affair, but it got us started, and, and here we are six six years later, and it's pretty pretty massive. Okay, and how big a talk, talking point was Brexit during London Tech Week? Um, once we finally Brexit, professionals from the EU countries will no longer have free movement into the UK. Uh, do you think that's already putting skilled people uh, from the UK, uh, from the EU off from coming to the UK? I mean, on your second point, yes, we have seen examples of EU nationals who are based here wanting to go back to their home markets. Um, when I speak to startups and scale-ups, uh, a number of them have told me that it's become very, very difficult to recruit EU nationals into, into, into the UK because of the uncertainty. One in five London tech workers is from the EU. So, you know, it's something that we need to get sorted. We need a clear direction on what's going to happen with Brexit. It did come up last week, which is good. Um, I encourage it to come up because when you have people coming from Asia, India, Latin America, Africa, as we did, 
you need to explain to them what it means and why we feel confident that we will get through this and hopefully continue to build a strong ecosystem here. Okay, bring you in here, Garen. You are, mm-hmm. presumably you advise advertising agencies as part of your, your role. What is your impression the impact Bre- Brexit is having both on advertising industry and the, and the tech industry? Um, well, I advise agencies and brands and um, influencers and everybody involved in the piece. And I think we feel the same in that we see that a lot of talent comes from Europe. There's a lot of mobility um, across the EU at the moment. And there are some other sort of key hubs like Amsterdam that are certainly eyeing up any potential uh, or mopping up any potential sort of talent that might be restricted from travelling to the UK post-Brexit. We're hoping that a Brexit doesn't mean that people can't come here, obviously, but if that is the result temporarily, then places like Amsterdam, like Ireland, are certainly going to benefit. Is there any evidence that they're managing to attract or lure people across already? I know several contacts who've gone over from London to Amsterdam, not necessarily through necessity, but um, because it's such a vibrant place, um, sure. similarly with Dublin. I think London is still very much a hub for the creative industries, and so it will always be a draw. So people still want to come here and are locking in their opportunities to come here while they can. I think we had some great messages last week to me that reinforces, one, the investment levels in both London and UK tech can continue to outpace um, all of the European markets. Um, the number of tech unicorns that we now have in the UK is over 70, 45 of which are in London. I, somebody said that we now have more tech unicorns in London than we do in San Francisco, which is really quite mm. remarkable. Uh, and and uh, building on Garen's point, you know, creative industry is strong. We're seeing great creative tech businesses emerge, but obviously fintech. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look, there were announcements last week that both Revolut and Monzo are expanding internationally. Uh, Tavit from TransferWise spoke at our launch event. You know, okay. they're doing phenomenally well. And plus deep tech, AI, mm. machine learning, etc. We're, we're, we're proving a depth of strength in all of these areas. So other European cities, I think, will grow and benefit from this. But my philosophy is, look, you know, tech hubs that interconnect with other tech hubs all become stronger. Our challenge now is with the offline world and the disruption that that will create on places like the high street. Okay, but it's fair to say that there was those who were predicting like a doomsday scenario of advertising companies uprooting out the UK, that's not materialised and that's unlikely to materialise. That's absolutely right. And it's so key to this economy uh, that the creative industries do continue to succeed that I think it won't be allowed to happen um, that all of these tech companies and creative industries of different kinds uproot and move. Unfortunately, we're seeing it in other sectors like the manu- uh, mm-hmm. manufacturing and motoring, um, but less so, hopefully, in the creative services. Yeah, it, it, it is interesting. I mean, to me, it, it, we still haven't left the European Union. We still don't know how right. we're going to leave the European Union. And what I say to people is, look, if we have a no-deal Brexit, which I know Parliament says that they won't allow it to happen, sure. you know, it, all, all bets are off. But I have said, look, if we have a softer Brexit, you know, perhaps a customs union, I actually think we're going to see a mini economic boom here because mm, we're really. sitting on three years of pent-up demand. Yes. Investors have been holding back. Companies have been reluctant to expand until they understand what is the environment in which they need to expand into. And if we don't know what Brexit looks like, it's just left this big question mark. So getting that clarity and hopefully if it's a softer Brexit, I think we're going to see a, a real big uptick in our economic cycle as a result. Karen? I agree. I agree. I mean, for the three years that we've been waiting for Brexit, essentially, there was a few months of um, stagnation, but there has been activity. There's been mm. mergers and acquisitions happening yes. 
unexpectedly, frankly, during that period. I think things might be slowing down in the last couple of months, but that's a culmination of you know the leadership debates as well as Brexit looming and the lack of plan even at this sort of 11th hour. But I see it as a temporary um, sort of stall rather than any sort of permanent condition that we're going to be in. Okay, so thinking about investment and thinking specifically about the, the platforms, both Google and Facebook uh, are making substantial investments in new properties in King's uh, Cross. Apple Apple are moving into uh, new offices in Battersea. Yeah. And these companies are relatively uh, big employers now. I think Facebook employs around 2,500 people in the UK. Google employs over 4,000 staff in the capital alone. Obviously, Facebook and Google are facing a number of challenges too, from failing to get to grips with fake news, propaganda, hate speech, and more uh, harmful postings on their platforms. And one long-standing criticism of Google and Facebook has uh, faced repeatedly over the past few years has been the level of corporation tax they pay in the UK. So, for example, for the latest annual figures for Facebook, uh, they paid 15.8 million tax in the UK, despite a record uh, 1.3 billion in British sales. And so its UK tax bill was less than 1% of, of sales. So it must add that Facebook has done nothing illegal here, um, but there is uh, a sentiment uh, among some people that both Facebook and Google should do more and should pay more tax. Yeah, I you know look, if you look at the whole situation, to your point, they are following the rule of the law, the tax law. And to me, it's the tax law that needs to be sorted out, not at the UK level, not at the EU level, but at the OECD level. And you know, we can come back and talk about this digital tax. Um, but you know, we need to change that at that level so that we have greater consistency from market to market. And yes, we see a fairer share of that tax being paid in the UK. You know, I am heartened to see that they're increasing their employee bases because they also play pay payroll tax. So the more that they hire, the more we see in payroll tax mm. revenues, which is good. I would like to see them pay more in corporation tax, but I don't want to see artificial things done. I'd rather see the OECD, and I heard Philip, Philip Hammond speak about this last week. There are meetings later this year to kind of get to the bottom of that, sort out a digital tax. You know, the French are already deploying uh, a digital tax. We need some greater consistency across the 30-some-odd markets of the OECD so that companies both large and small understand the rules of the game and companies are paying their fair share of tax. Shouldn't it's got to be done. Shouldn't the onus be on Facebook and Google? There'd be a lot of goodwill towards them if they paid more corporation tax. Look, it's down to them to decide. I, I, I think if I were in their seat, yes, I would encourage them to do so. But I think they should rightfully say, look, we need to get this sorted across a number of markets so that, you know, they must employ an army of tax experts. Let's get greater consistency in the OECD tax rules. Um, because I don't want them to be penalised here in the UK versus other countries. They're investing very heavily in mm. the UK in terms of employees, space, etc. So we want to send a message to them that is, look, pay your fair share of tax. Let's get this sorted at the OECD level. And please keep investing in the UK. We need these big tech giants to be part of our overall tech ecosystem. They play a very important role in that. Garen, can you talk about this subject? Um, in broad terms, I won't comment on um, specific companies, but in general terms, I agree with everything that you said, which is not many companies will pay more tax than they have to. I don't know of any that, um, <laughs> in terms of examples that you could choose. Um, businesses that are willing to come here and invest in the country and employ lots of people are to be supported, especially during the next sort of year or so during this transition and beyond. Um, I would like to see everybody 
you know, that every business that makes huge multi-billion pound profits pay a fair share here, and there are probably mechanisms which could be deployed in order to make sure that that happens. And I'm sure that all of these businesses will be perfectly prepared to sort of go I along heard with a couple that. of years ago that actually Starbucks did make an additional tax yeah. payment over and above. I mean, they're not a tech company, but they are sure. a multinational that benefits from this. So I guess there might have been a couple of companies that have done it. But yes, to your so, well, point, probably, nobody, nobody's really kind of saying, well, let me let me just write a check for 50 million because they're, they're not going to do that. Sure. And I think the, the pressure had built up, I think, with Starbucks. I remember that example several years ago. And it, it does become a point where, you know, either you pay that mm. money and win back the sort of PR um, or you sort yes. of treat it as a, as a PR expense, mm. um, the damage that it's doing to your brand. Um, and when it reaches the level when consumers are boycotting your products and so on, I think yes. that is a time that some companies are willing to take the extra step. I think, we, you know, you've mentioned the digital tax, and I think we have a very interesting experiment going on at the moment in France where the government there sure. is in the process of deploying a digital tax. They are haven't been listening to the EU. The EU basically said, look, we want to do this on an EU-wide basis. The French have gone out. They're starting to introduce, I think it's a 3% tax on revenues of, of companies that are generating revenues, something north of $750 million a year. So that's going to target the Facebooks and the Googles, etc. How they actually manage that, I'm scratching my head because, you know, if they're going to tax a big digital advertiser's on their revenue, what do they tax? Do they tax what you see? Mm. Do they tax what you click? Do they tax what you buy? Mm. Not entirely clear. And then what happens if I am sitting in the UK where I am theoretically not subject to some type of digital tax, and yet I'm going onto a French website and buying something, you know, that French Google has taken me to a French website. How do you reconcile between France and UK in terms of tax paid and tax not paid. So this to me just reinforces that a digital tax needs to be developed on an, on an OECD basis. The other thing that the French are doing, which I think is really a mistake, is that they're saying that they're going to raise money from this tax and they're going to use it to cover their budget shortfall. Okay. If they're going to raise a digital tax, why don't they use it and put it into a fund mm. that's going to train the nation on mm. digital skills, upskilling and retraining because we're so desperate for more people to come into the sector and work in the sector. Mm. That to me is another benefit of a digital tax that I think the, the French have missed an opportunity here. And Gary, that sounds similar to Philip Hammond's idea then, this idea of the digital services tax, which will effectively uh, tax sales to generate in the UK. And the other point is, I mean, if Swingin... Uh, tax rules do come in, is there any danger that these platforms would actually leave the UK then? I don't think they'll ever leave the UK, but there's always a balance between where they sort of headquarter themselves and how many people they employ here. And there is a balance to be struck because if they do up sticks, then we're not making any tax revenues. That's not going to help anybody. So there's always going to be a sensible uh, balance. But I think it is a priority, as you say, that where the tax is spent is almost an incentive also to pay the tax yeah. because if you have it invested into retraining, um, partway through people's careers or lives. Um, it's something that came up during the leadership debate of the Conservatives. It seems to be a, a pressing priority. In the next 10, 20 years, there are going to be jobs that are completely obsolete and other jobs that need very specific training. And there's going to be a very, very small pool. 
unless we start now investing in the training for those, for those people. Absolutely. There's an interesting figure that came out last week um, that basically said of all of the job vacancies in the UK, 20% of them are in the digital and technology area. You know, to me, that goes to the magnitude of what we need to do, okay. yes, to bring in overseas talent, but to also make sure that our homegrown talent is equipped for these jobs of the future. Okay, so let's just quickly touch on uh, digital harms too. Uh, new piece of uh, potential legislation, uh, new rules on digital harms. Uh, so this could come into force in the next few years. Um, um, this will hit uh, internet companies uh, possibly fined or blocked if they fail to tackle online harms such as terrorist propaganda and child abuse. So this is a, an obviously a major problem. Uh, Garant, initial thoughts on the idea? Well, this is something that the government um, started to look into. It wants to make the UK essentially the safest place in the world to go online. Sure. Um, and it's considering a new regulator or adapting an existing regulator yeah. to absorb a number of new rules where they're looking not only at enforcing um, illegality, so child pornography and terrorism and all mm. of the awful things that everybody wants to see eradicated, um, but also trying to regulate harms in the broadest sense where there is a very clear grey area um, and it's very subjective as to what is harm. And I was thinking of Joe Brand's joke only the other day, in fact. Sure. It's, a, it's a good example of something that to some people is a harm. Um, it was even reported to the police and the police investigated. And that probably, in the most extreme examples, is the right approach to take in that it's dealt with by the existing uh, structures that we have, the police and the courts, rather than a sort of pseudo-regulator that is sort of listening to what the government's asking it to do and very much controlling what we are and aren't allowed to say in the online space. And this is something that would apply not only to um, social media platforms, Facebook, mm. Twitter, etc., but to anywhere where there's any interaction between people online, any user-generated content that you can access. So that would include Amazon um, in the sort of customer reviews of different products, um, you know, any, any sort of comments that you're able to post onto different websites like news websites even though the minister said that it wouldn't yeah. quite go that far. So it's a broad ranging and at the moment quite amorphous um, concept full of great ideals um, but I don't know whether it's something that is workable in practice. So it's too broad brush initially and I guess it'll take a few years before it comes into law. Things could change a lot in that time too. It will change. In the next few weeks and months things will change. Um, ministers will change, Prime Ministers will change, we'll have different priorities and we'll see whether this stays at the top of the agenda or whether actually we have uh, different pressing needs and a different approach to this kind of problem in the coming sort of six months or so. I mean to me this is a great example and, and, and on one hand I, you know, I, I praise the government for trying to do mm. things like this whether it's this or there's discussions around data and ethics and data and data privacy in terms of trying to come to grips with this and, and that is to be you know lauded and, 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 and applauded great the flip side is to, to, to Garen's point is you know if this becomes too big and too cumbersome and too unwieldy in another two or three years the world is going to move on and evolve and people will continue to have bad experiences online. So there has to be some kind of middle ground where you start to put something out and maybe you then potentially expand it over time to see how it works. Having an independent regulator, I do think, makes a lot of sense, but don't boil the ocean all in one go. Get it out there, adjust it, tweak it, modify it, and then expand it yeah. because you know the online world just moves ever so quickly. But it's fair to say, if we look at the social networks, in particular YouTube, 
that they've not been able to get a handle on um, moderating objectionable content. If you looked at YouTube's transparency report, I think they had over 8 million videos that took off in the last three months. So it's been a persistent problem. And I think the social media companies have effectively admitted that they can't police it and they need government assistance too. Well, there's government assistance and urging and then there's government regulation, which is slightly sure. different. And government urging is to deploy technology, to use innovation, to use AI, for example, to actually find the types of technology that you can deploy to, to find content as soon as it goes up. You can find pretty harmful content, whether it's terror-related, whether it's sexually-related, uh, mm -hmm. whether it's violence-related. And AI is very, very good at identifying that and removing it quite quickly. What AI is not able to do, and nor are humans, is to judge every piece of comment or content which is written, um, which goes back and forth, which some people might find objectionable, some people might not. Okay, and you mentioned regulator. That could be Ofcom, or it could be a new entity completely, I guess, could it? Yes. So Ofcom, I think, is high in the sort of offing at the moment, so it could well be Ofcom, but it's going to require a lot of funding. It's going to require a lot of changes. Um, I think, I'm not sure who else is in the running, but potentially the Competition and Markets Authority, who's been quite active recently, I see them as being a potential... Um, home for this kind of regulation, especially if it's significantly narrowed down in scope. Um, that's something I haven't seen being talked about, but it's certainly something I think should be considered if this is the route that we're going to go down. And the mood music from the social networks is positive, really, in largely wanting to work with government on this. Yes, at, at that highest level, I, I, I think it is. I mean... I mean, if you dig deeper, I think many of them may not want to be too heavily regulated. Sure. I think some of them realize that this is such a massive task. You know, they, they know for themselves that they're going to have to step up on the self-regulation because if they don't do a better job of that, people will leave them. And, you know, you just have to look at what's happened with Facebook over the past few years. You know, people kind of saying, do I really want to put all my personal stuff on there? if they're not looking out for me or they're not protecting me in terms of their own mechanisms. So they need to do a better job of that. They are saying, you know, Mark Zuckerberg have said, you know, he is open to being regulated. So that says that also says to me that for them, this is a massive issue and challenge because you don't just open up and invite the regulators in unless you're looking at it and saying, we may not be able to do this on our own. That's and, right. and so that's that to me indicated that there's a worry going on here. And, you know, I think we have to come up with the solution. Otherwise, people will just be put off using the Internet, which is what we don't want to have happen. I think that's right. The, the flip side of the coin is that when you're faced with the government objective of making the UK the safest place in the world to go mm. online, I think that's quite a puritanical sort of um, approach to be honest and perhaps too idealistic the world is not a safe place it's not a very comfortable place and and there's always going to be the the risk versus freedom trade-off mm. i think if you and there's a reference in the white paper actually to banning taking this well banning things but taking the success that has been health and safety regulation over the last mm. 20 years if you speak to ordinary people i don't know if everyone would agree that health and safety regulation has actually struck quite the right note and in some cases has either gone too far now or went too far maybe 10-15 years ago. Yes it was something that the Daily Mail and other newspapers sort of championed and used um, as a sort of talking point but there's something to this sort of concept that we are very sort of coddling slightly yeah. and it's the coddling element of saying things that people might not like that I am uncomfortable with, the, the censorship 
which is mm. another word for it, mm. versus dealing with actual illegal activity, which I'm, mm. of course, all in favour for. Yeah. Well, maybe just a point to make here. We do have examples where we have very constructive regulators, and I hope we would look at what they're doing to model some of this work on. And, you know, I, an example for me is the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority. Sure. You know, there are so many people that I speak to who just say, look, they're very good to work with. They're open to new ideas. They're open to innovation. They've just launched this sandbox initiative where fintech businesses can work with them to test and trial new concepts, etc. And it's you know it's it's a collaborative process. Yes, they need to come in and regulate. That's part of their mm. their their role and their duty. But they you know when I hear people say, look, they're they're a very good regulator to work with, and I think of something like this with online harms. How can we model what's been successful with the FCA if we're going to create mm. uh, potentially another independent regulator here? Right, okay, uh, Russ, Garen, thank you very much. We're going to leave it there. And uh, that's the podcast, a uh, media marketing podcast sponsored by uh, UCOM.